Well, praise the Lord, we're continuing forward in the book of Luke, uh, continuing to look at the empty tomb. I'll be reading from verse 50 of chapter 23 to verse 12 of chapter 24. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, Two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Our Lord teaches us through examples that serve as contrasts held up before us to examine ourselves. Which path will you follow? Which path are you on? In Luke 7, 44 through 48, we read these words. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, see this woman is unnamed, we don't know who she is, but she is made famous forever here in God's word. Then he, that's Jesus, turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to Kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Matthew Henry about this particular text says it should be rendered therefore she loved much for it is plain by the tenor of Christ's discourse that the loving much was not the 
cause, but the effect of her pardon and of her comfortable sense of it. For we love God because He first loved us. He did not forgive us because we first loved Him. But to whom little is forgiven as is to thee, the same loveth little as thou dost. Hereby he intimates to the Pharisee that his love to Christ was so little that he had reason to question whether he loved him at all in sincerity, and consequently whether indeed his sin, though comparatively little, were forgiven him. Instead of grudging greater sinners the mercy they find with Christ upon their repentance, we should be stirred up by their example to examine ourselves whether we be indeed forgiven and do love Christ. So we'll continue forward now looking at the empty tomb. This is part three. Quickly, you remember we looked at the when of the empty tomb. It was the first day Sabbath, which as we saw together is the proper way of interpreting all four of the gospel accounts. It's not the first day of the week. It is the first day Sabbath So we see that the gospel writers writing later, looking back, understood that this was the first Christian Sabbath because this was not a Jewish Sabbath day. That day that Jesus was resurrected was the day of first fruits and it was not a Sabbath day in the Jewish calendar. Not not a weekly Sabbath, nor was it a high Sabbath as a part of any of the feasts. It was the first Christian Sabbath, which we know shall continue the first day of the week until Jesus returns. We saw that it was very early in the morning. These women, whom we will look at closely today, wanted to be there as soon as they could. And furthermore, we looked last week at the day of first fruits. And what a joy it is to see the resurrection in light of the feast of first fruits. Because if there's a first fruit, then there's going to be what? A second fruit, a third fruit. And as I said last week, we could maybe even call this the feast of eternal fruits. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, and brothers and sisters, all those in him, we do not need to fear death. We will come out of the grave with renewed bodies like Jesus Christ did. And we will live forever with him in perfection because of what he has accomplished. And the feast of first fruits points us not only to the victory of Christ in eternity, but also to the victory of Christ in this earth when we look to 1 Corinthians 15. Remember last week we looked at it. And Paul was talking about if we don't believe in the resurrection, we don't have any hope in this life or the next. And then he argues from the Feast of first fruits to show how resurrection brings us great hope in this world before Jesus comes back and in eternity. Even referencing that great text from Psalm 110, connecting it to the Feast of first fruits, that Jesus Christ will not return until all of his enemies have been placed under his feet. Praise be to God. Amen? Well, today we will look at the who, the women at the empty tomb. And as we've already looked at by way of introduction from Luke 7, is a very simple and powerful message given to us by the way the events of the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the way it unfolds, and who was present. So, 
This is verse 1. They and certain other women with them. That's who showed up at the empty tomb to begin with. So who is this they? If you look at the text that I read today, you'll see that the they refers back to verses 55 and 56, right after Christ was taken down from the cross. Here's those verses. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So Luke honors these women under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by telling this story from their perspective. The they that we read throughout this whole story is these women from Galilee and other women who came with them. So they equals the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee. Now, this takes us back to Luke chapter 36 through to Luke chapter 8 verse 3. And it's the reason why I put those words from Luke chapter 7 before our eyes. This woman who is unnamed is mentioned in this context and points to the impetus, the motive behind these women. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with them. This is starting with Luke chapter 7 verse 36. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching 
and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So, when we read in Luke chapter 23, going back a little bit more, in verse 49, of the women who followed him from Galilee, standing at a distance and watching his crucifixion, instead of running away like the disciples, our minds should be quite curious what force kept them close to Christ during such a terrifying moment. And then later when we read in verse 55 that these same women who had come with him from Galilee also followed his lifeless body to his tomb and attended his burial, our curiosity should grow even more. What is different about these women compared to the missing disciples? And in today's text, when we see that they returned to Christ's body at first light in order to anoint Him. The first ones back to His tomb, unafraid of being closely associated with Christ. This third key moment, there's a a crucifixion, the burial, and the anointing, which turns into the resurrection. This should have us filled up now. You see Luke building the tension. Three separate things have happened that they get to see and report that the disciples missed be filled up with this question. What is motivating these women? Well, I I think it's very clear that the answer is given to us by Luke in the above verses from chapter 7 and 8 that I just read to you. The unnamed woman weeping on Jesus' feet, wiping His feet with her hair, anointing His feet with this expensive, fragrant oil, this sinner who was rejected by proper society, she reveals to us the motive for us to ponder, and Jesus doesn't make us guess. He tells us her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. So I hope that as a result of today's message, from now on when you read this phrase, women from Galilee, that your mind will go back to this weeping woman, this sinner who is so overcome with gratitude and love that she humbles herself in this way and loves the Lord Jesus Christ publicly and openly like she does. These women had left their homes in Galilee and walked at Jesus' side throughout His ministry. Okay, this, this is not... A short walk. This is about 80 miles. Plus, looking at the flow of the text, starting there in chapter 8, they probably went north with Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration, like we talked about. They were probably with Him there and throughout the entire rest of His ministry from the Mount of Transfiguration to Jerusalem, starting at Luke chapter 9, verse 51, through until chapter 21 when He arrives in Jerusalem for that final Passover day. So think what these women did. They left their homes, their families, 
their friends, and they went with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. One of them, we know, was Mary Magdalene. She was with Jesus exactly when she joined in with him. We don't know exactly when, but she was with him. Bach says, in addition to the twelve, a group of women traveled with Jesus and supported his ministry. Many of these women had benefited from his ministry either through exorcism or through healing, three of whom Luke singles out for specific mention. An itinerant ministry like like Jesus was common, and support from women was common, but it was unusual for women to travel with a rabbi. The first woman, Mary Magdalene, was freed from the presence of seven demons. This healing is not presented in detail anywhere in the New Testament, but Mark 16, verse 9, has a similar summary. After Jesus' act of compassion, Mary decided to serve the agent of God who had healed her. The name Magdalene suggests that she was from the region of Magdala, a town on the Sea of Galilee's western shore about three miles north of Tiberias. And as was argued in the earlier exegesis of 737, she was not the sinful woman who anointed Jesus. And I'll say there are some commentaries who believe it was, but most think it probably was not Mary Magdalene there. The unnamed woman, most agree, remains unnamed. We don't know who she is. Going on with Bach. Nor is it clear that she was immoral, for demon possession was not a sinful condition. This is about Mary Magdalene. Mary stayed faithful to Jesus, for it is recorded that she watched the crucifixion, she saw where Jesus was laid, and participated in the anointing of his body. So, Mary is a woman who demonstrates faithfulness to Christ. She stayed with him. What else did these women do? These women helped provide sustenance for Christ out of their own substance. We read that from chapter 8, verse 3. And these, this should be in our minds. What is it that's motivating these women to do these things? Look at all the things they did. It wasn't just suddenly that it happened at the crucifixion. There was a whole time that they had stayed with Jesus. Bach says, more significant is that those touched by Jesus' work minister him and the twelve through their possessions. Women are prominent in this regard. Whether recipients of exorcism or of his teaching, they contribute to the advance of God's kingdom through their resources. Such assistance was a practical means of helping the mission, thus enabling Jesus' entourage to tour the region. So they weren't, it appears, just along for the ride for free food and free fun. They were committed so much so that they were spending their resources to support Christ and the twelve along the way. Next, moving up to the time of Christ's crucifixion, they remained present there. In verse 49, we know these women from Galilee were at his crucifixion. We've discussed this before, but here's a man who's being executed, and they are not afraid to publicly associate with him. Now, it does say at a distance, but they were still there. Next, in verse 55, they had remained present after he died on the cross. They didn't leave. They remained as his body was taken down, taken down waiting however long they had to, had to wait for Joseph and Nicodemus to show up. And then they followed after Christ's body. Where Jesus went, they went. Next, they followed Joseph all the way to the tomb And then they observed the tomb. They knew how to get back to the tomb 
once these Sabbaths were passed. They knew the way to Jesus. They wanted to make sure they knew how to get back to Christ. And they observed how his body was laid. That's what Luke says. They wanted to see how his body was laid, what configuration, where in the tomb. They wanted to know the details of his body's placement in the tomb. They watched his body all the way to the very spot in the tomb where it was laid. And they cared about how Joseph and Nicodemus laid Christ's body inside the tomb. So we see this persistent affection for the body of Christ and this persistent desire that these women had to be near to Him, to serve Him, to be alongside Him, to love Him. Matthew Henry says, who attended the funeral, not any of the disciples, but only the women that came with Him from Galilee, who, as they stayed by Him while He hung on the cross, so they followed Him, all in tears, no doubt, and beheld the sepulcher where it was, which was the way to it, and how his body was laid in it. They were led to this not by their curiosity, but by their affection to the Lord Jesus, which was strong as death, and which many waters could not quench. Here was a silent funeral, and not a solemn one, and yet his rest was glorious. So what did they do after they left his body in the tomb? They were still thinking about him, and still carrying out acts of love towards Christ while they were physically separated from Him. They were preparing the spices and the fragrant oils for when they would anoint His body after the Sabbaths had passed. There was no time to do this at that moment. They chose not to break the Sabbath, but they went to their homes and they prepared the spices during non-Sabbath hours is the most likely understanding. The text also tells us about these women in verse 56, that they rested on the Sabbaths. And, and as you know, we're saying Sabbaths because it's, much, it's, it's very likely that there were two Sabbaths in a row. That it was the weekly Saturday Sabbath, which we call Saturday using our lingo, and prior to that, it was the high Sabbath of the Passover feast. And that Christ was crucified the day before that, which would actually be Thursday in our nomenclature. And those two Sabbaths, they rested. It puts an extra emphasis on their faithfulness. 24 hours, they didn't give up. 48 hours, they didn't give up. They intended to love Christ through this act of service to His lifeless body. They did not work on the days of rest, but instead they rested according to the commandment is what the text says. Bach says about these women, about the situation, in making the transition to resurrection, only Luke speaks of the women resting on the Sabbath. The women are pious and they obey the Mosaic law. Luke, however, seems to suggest that the women did nothing on the Sabbath. They planned to care for the body first thing on Sunday morning as soon as allowable according to Mosaic law. And so... These women expressed their love to Christ in two ways here. Preparing to anoint His body with the spices and the fragrant oils and by obeying His commandments. Love never calls us to disobey God's commandments. Next, 
when it was time to go to Christ's tomb and anoint his body with the spices and the fragrant oils after the Sabbath, they brought other women along with them. This is worth noting. Henry says, notice is also taken of certain others with them in verse 1 and again in verse 10. These who had not joined, apparently, in preparing the spices would yet go along with them to the sepulcher as if the number of Christ's friends increased when he was dead. The daughters of Jerusalem, when they saw how inquisitive the spouse was after her beloved, were desirous to seek him with her. So were these other women. And here's the principle. The zeal of some provokes others. So these women, their love for Christ, their desire to worship Him and express their affection to Him with their hands, with their lives, with their time, drew others into that. Next. They came to the tomb very early in the morning, even before the sun rose. We've discussed this. Bach says about this. I read this last week. The new week starts normally enough, having fulfilled the law of the Sabbath. The women go to the tomb to anoint the body. Luke further specifies the time with this phrase that means deep dawn. Apparently it is early in the morning, perhaps the initial portion of dawn, since John 20 verse 1 speaks of it still being dark. Matthew says, after the Sabbath in the dawn. And Mark says, early in the morning after the sun has risen. Bach says here, the women went to the tomb probably as soon as they could see. And you remember how we talked about deer hunters get up in the morning while it's still dark? And they're walking as twilight is coming. And they're getting into the stand just when you can barely see. And maybe even while it's still dark, getting in the stand and waiting for that hour to go where finally you can start to see to begin your hunt. These women were more eager to see Christ than any deer hunter ever, I would say. But the the idea is they had to be able to see what they were going to do. Now, there's a list here of some things that these women were the first to do. Now, just let this sink in. They were the first to see. They were the first to see with their eyes, the first human beings, to see with their eyes the stone rolled away. They were the first ones to see with their eyes that we, that we know of in Scripture that the tomb was empty. The first ones. They were the first to hear the angelic message proclaiming Christ is risen from the dead. They heard it first. They were the first to believe Christ was raised from the dead. That's what verse 20, chapter 24 verse 8 actually means. They believed the angel. What did that lead to? They became the first human evangelist to proclaim Christ's resurrection. Look at all the honors bestowed upon these women. They were the first evangelists to get to go that we know of from Scripture and proclaim He is risen from the dead. It came out of their mouths, their human mouths, first. Not the disciples, not Peter, James, and John, not any of the twelve, none of them, There's even more honor here. They were the first evangelists to gain that blessing of being scorned and having their message not believed. And who was the first guilty of scorning the first human evangelist? The disciples. 
the first human evangelist to proclaim the resurrection that we know of in Scripture was scorned, idle tales, what's wrong with these women, they've always been crazy, or whatever, who knows what the disciples were thinking. And the disciples, as far as we know, were the first ones to scorn the resurrection message. Are you seeing this? Would you please concentrate on this? Because the question is, who are you? What path are you on? Have you been forgiven much? Do you have a heart exploding with gratitude for Christ? Do you love much? Do you have the faith of these women to believe the gospel message and to never scorn it? R.C. Sproul says about this, it is significant, I think, that the first witnesses of the resurrection were the women who had stood by him when the men fled out of fear. There is a sense in which their loyalty and devotion to Christ was uniquely honored by their being the first to get the message of the resurrection. However, when they first passed on the news to the disciples, Luke writes, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. When we first discover Christ and have the scales removed from our eyes, we can't understand why everybody around us doesn't share our excitement. We can't understand the attitude of skepticism and cynicism. But think of it. Jesus' own disciples rejected the news of his resurrection as nonsense. What had they seen? Give me some examples of some things that they had seen with their own eyes. Just just throw something out. Anything that they had seen with their own eyes about Jesus Christ. That you and I have never seen. Casting demons out. What else? Walking on water. water. These are the people who don't believe her. Okay, let's remember this. Walking on water. What else? The transfiguration. They saw him glow like lightning. What else? Raising people from the dead. Dead in a grave. Concerned he was going to smell. It's been so long, Lord. Dead. Takes him out of the grave. What else did they see Jesus do? Healing, blind people. healing the blind, healing the lame, healing all forms of illness, demonstrating utter and complete control over all demonic forces of this world. What about speaking to the weather? Did he do that? And calm a sea like that, a raging sea they thought was going to kill them? Because let's don't forget who these people are that look at her and say, oh, this, these women and say, oh, this is nonsense. Now, why do we want to emphasize this? Because we need faith like the disciples needed faith. We need humility like the disciples needed humility. We need to be like these women, not like Simon the Pharisee, not like the disciples were. Now, we do have to give one word for John because he was at the cross. Okay? So, we know that John the apostle was at the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus. But the synoptics don't even mention him. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us the picture that there were no disciples present at his crucifixion. So I hope that this will grip you to realize that these individuals who walked with him and saw all these things did, and even heard him say, did he not tell them he would be killed, he would be crucified, and he would be resurrected and raised up. He even told them it was going to happen. Now, what happened there? 
They did not have faith yet. This is what was going on. They did not have faith in who Jesus Christ was yet. They didn't understand. And they had some faith, but they didn't have enough faith to understand the situation and to stay with Christ and to love Him. And they weren't humble enough to see how sinful they were and how much they needed a great Savior. And these women understood that. They were the first to see, I'm going to switch over to Matthew 28 because Luke doesn't tell this part of the story, but I think it's important. They were the first to see and to touch Christ's resurrected body. The first to hear His precious voice, to receive His personal love and touch and affection and comfort and guidance. Not the disciples. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Oh, yeah. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. You know, right? Because if death is conquered, every other fear is done. Do not be afraid. Here's Jesus back to Jesus. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So these women are going to get to go home with the resurrected Christ. And we're going to talk about this in the weeks to come. What happened between the resurrection and the ascension? We have a lot of things to talk about. Episodes to look at where Jesus was with his people after his resurrection and before his ascension 40 days later. And we know that Mary Magdalene was the first of the first. So we see there from Mark, was that, or no, Matthew, I just read, that the women were first. But now we see Mary Magdalene was the first of the first in Mark. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. John gives us more details about the first interaction between Jesus and Mary. Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. See, she still wants to be near his body. Just like before. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabbi, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that she had spoken 
that he had spoken these things to her. So, the who of the empty tomb sends us some important messages for us to consider. And so let's have some questions to bring these truths into our own lives here today. So do you want to be like Simon the Pharisee or like Mary Magdalene? I mean, Simon had a nice place. He had nice clothes. He had nice friends. He was respected. And he appears to have a little bit of love for Jesus. I mean, it doesn't make Simon out to be someone who's definitely an unbeliever. Looks like he might have a little faith and a little love for Jesus. But he doesn't understand this woman who's so out of her mind about Jesus. Like, she's kind of over the top. She's like a wacko. You want to be like him? Or do you want to be like Mary Magdalene? Whom we see worshiping Christ with a heart of gratitude and humility. A life overflowing with faith and thankfulness because of what Christ had done for her. Where does Simon fix his focus? Do you see his focus fixed upon a great Savior who saved a great sinner? No. Simon is like so many of us. We know that we're sinful. We know that we have some problems. But overall, we're in pretty good shape. We're in pretty good shape, but we've just got these few flaws that the Lord needs to work on. Whereas Mary comes to him aware that she's ruined. She's shattered. She's corrupted through and through. Who do you want to be like that? Another one. Do you, like, you want to be like the women from Galilee or like the disciples in hard times? When the history is written about your life, Do you want to be present at these types of moments? Or do you want to be recorded as absent and left for people to wonder what you were afraid of? Do you want to be like the worshiping woman in Luke chapter 7? We don't even know her name. Crying and weeping, pouring out your life to Christ, publicly identifying with Him. Everyone knows that you love Jesus Christ because of your behavior. Or like Peter, who denies most recently in the story that he ever even knew the man. Do you see the distinctions that are being drawn by contrast here for us? These questions should be simple for you, right? We want to be like these people who are commended before our eyes in Scripture. What sets these women apart from the disciples? What's different about them? And it's very simple. They stayed with him. It wasn't complicated. They probably couldn't have given some extensive theological treatise about substitutionary atonement. They they probably couldn't have talked about the triune God. They probably maybe wouldn't even have been able to talk about Jesus as God and man. They may not have even understood that much. But they knew that he forgave them. They knew that they were forgiven because of what he said. And they loved him and they expressed a life of gratitude and humility towards him. We don't know what their theological understanding was. But we know they stayed with Jesus. Where were they on the first Sabbath day? Where were they? Well, they were as close to Jesus as they could be. Where do you go on the Sabbath day? 
Now here's the big question. Why did they stay with Jesus? They were thankful. They were thankful. They had been touched by the Holy Spirit of God. These women. To see their own sin. Not in an academic sense. Not about others. But they had smelled the filthiness of their own souls. They had tasted of the ruin that they brought into their lives and the lives of others. They knew that their sins were many and that they were justifiably under wrath from God, justifiably rejected by society. They were all alone with no hope. And then Christ came to them and they were forgiven. The forgiven soul is the thankful soul. The forgiven soul is the soul that overflows with resurrection power, with love. So they stayed with Jesus because they knew they were great sinners. They were seeing themselves rightly. By God's grace, they had seen themselves accurately, clearly. But then they knew that God had forgiven them. And when we look at Christ on the cross and His death upon the cross for sinners, you have to wonder if they didn't, before their eyes, begin to understand that their sins had been placed upon their great Savior. And that they were forgiven only because He had died. He had taken the death, the punishment that they deserved. So their lives were overflowing with gratitude and these ongoing, consistent, loving acts of thanks, desiring always to be near to Christ, to His body. Why did the disciples run away? So we've talked about why the women stayed close to Him. Why did the disciples run away? They were afraid, right? The simple answer is they were fearful. They were afraid they were going to get killed or thrown in prison or have their livelihoods destroyed or their families harmed. They were afraid of the threat. Did the women face less of a threat? Probably not. Their families would have suffered as well. So what separated it out? To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. They had yet to experience the depths of their own sinfulness. They had yet to understand what Jesus Christ has done for them, would do for them, did for them, or had done for them, because they could speak in all three tenses throughout the course of their life. And so they weren't grateful. They didn't see themselves. They were more like Simon the Pharisee at that moment than they were like faithful Christian disciples. So they just weren't grateful because they didn't see themselves as great sinners in need of a great Savior. So they had very little thanks and love. There's a lot of bickering about who's the greatest. Remember that? They did have plenty of that. So you might be wondering, well, Pastor Clark, okay, wait a minute. Are you saying that I need 
to act out a life of lots of sin, like go and sin a whole bunch, like these women did, so that I can be forgiven much and have lots of joy and, and gratitude. Is that what I have to do, Pastor Clark? Should we all just go wantonly, brazenly break every single commandment so that we can really be grateful people? Of course not. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means? Of course not. But it is true that someone who has been rescued back from that cliff of destruction and who has brought heaps and mounds of pain and suffering into their physical and emotional frame and into the lives of others because of how much more sin they've engaged in in their life, it is true that that person, when they go through that, is going to have an experience of gratitude and thankfulness that is different than the person who never gave themselves over that kind of sin. That is a reality of the situation. So, maybe the question could be this way. How could Simon the Pharisee become like the weeping woman? And we already told you the one path you don't do. You don't go out and sin like the weeping woman so that you can become like her. That's not what you do. It's very simple. Simon needs to acknowledge, and we who are like him, that all he has is from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as, as if you had not received it? You see, Simon's problem was that he was believing that he had not gone down that path of sin like the woman did because of some goodness in himself. Because of some inherent goodness in himself. He believed that he was better than her. We do the same thing. I remember when I first became a Christian, August 23rd, 1991. I, uh, 22 years, I was, you know, I was your nightmare. Um, You name it, we did it, um, with a few exceptions, and it was terrible. Let's just leave it like that as a summary, okay? And God saved me. He brought the gospel into my life through uh, some folks at a campus outreach meeting over in Augusta, Georgia. This gentleman explained the gospel to me. I'd heard it. I'd heard it before. You know, I grew up in a Bible-believing church. And he asked me a question that night. He said, because I kept answering all of his questions properly, he said, I guess you're a Christian. I said, no, come follow me around, I promise. He said, well, tell me about your prayer life. And I said, my, my what? And so I went home and I confessed my sin to God. I prayed to God for the first time. And just the certainty of salvation, the promises of God just washed through my mind and soul. And I was born again that night, August 23rd, 1991. Woke up the next day. The very first thing that came to my mind, and you know, I wasn't asking these questions. This was just right in my mind immediately. I will never send my kids to government schools and evolution is a joke. Those are the two things. I mean, I wasn't asking the questions. It wasn't a debate that was in my mind. I just knew how much I had been lied to and damaged by that worldview and by that place and how much filth and wickedness it led to in my life. 
But then why do I tell you this story? Well, because as we read before, it's hard to be quiet when that happens to you. Right? And I figured that you had a date to hear the gospel if you were in my presence for more than about five seconds. Okay? And I was telling everybody about the gospel and how thankful I was that God would save somebody like me. I mean, listen to what I did, and he saved me. And I'll never forget a young lady. We were in school together. She was also in the Christian ministry, and she heard me sharing the gospel, and she looked at me. She said, Matt, I praise God that he saved you from that life, and you have much to be thankful for. But I want you to hear something. I didn't live that life. You know, I grew up in a Christian home, and God spared me from those things. And I want you to hear something. And it was really meaningful to me. She said, the same grace that has saved you from that kept me from it. Hallelujah, right? And I want our children to hear this. You can have the same gratitude and joy of the the sinner woman when you realize that it's all of God. It's all of God. And you can say with the deepest sincerity, were it not for God's grace, I would walk that same path and worse and mean it and know it and rejoice. You see? This is why these women followed Jesus. This is why the disciples did not. Because they, somewhere in their souls, they had that enough pride to think that they didn't need a great Savior. I want you to think about what these women begin to demonstrate to us about the way that the Lord God has crafted His kingdom to reign in this earth. Because see, Simon needed to repent of his pride and his self-righteousness in order to enter into this life of joy and gladness and to be there with her weeping at his feet. Like, wouldn't that be a great story? Woman comes in weeping at his feet. Simon says to himself, what is wrong with me? And falls down and he's crying on Christ's feet with her. This is what we want. We want to all be crying at his feet together. So Matthew 5, 3, do you, think, do you think Simon was poor in spirit at that event? Or do you think the unnamed woman was poor in spirit? Which one? The unnamed woman. And what did she get? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is no little thing what this woman was rewarded with. The kingdom of heaven. It's a fair trade. <laughs> What about Matthew 5, verse 5? Do you think that Simon was meek? Do you think the disciples were meek? Do you think Peter was meek during these times when they turned their back on Christ? Do you think the weeping woman was meek? Do you think Mary Magdalene was meek after seven demons were brought out of her? Perfectly meek? No. But on the path of humility? What did they obtain? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So this is Resurrection Day. We're talking about an empty tomb. We've already brought up first fruits and the victory of the kingdom of God in the earth. And we're there again, but I'm here to proclaim to you that there's no walking in victory apart from this brokenness and this contrition. We have to be there. So do you see the connection that God teaches us here between the faith and the humility of this, these women and the honor that he gives to them. Were they after honor? You think they wanted to be written in scriptures? Do you think they were 
wanting to be known as the first who got to experience all these great things? I, I doubt that. What did they want? They wanted Christ. They wanted to be near to Him. They had hearts overflowing with gratitude for Him, and they lived lives of love towards Him. What about the connection between faith and humility and evangelism? Do you see here, there's so much we could say about evangelism. Evangelism is being unable to remain quiet about the great God who has saved you from your sins. That's what evangelism is. And it, you know, we have to know the gospel, we have to preach properly, but ultimately evangelism is a fire that comes out of people on fire for God. By His Spirit, made on fire by Him. That's what these women, express, that's what they demonstrate. Where are the disciples? They're rejecting the gospel. No fire there yet. These women demonstrate this to us. We need more faith in Christ. We need greater humility. We need for God to make us poor in spirit. We need for God to make us into the meek. And finally, do you see the connection here between faith, humility, and communion with God? Who are the ones that get to be near to Jesus? Who are the ones that get to hear His voice and fall at His feet? Who are the ones having communion with God? Not the disciples. Not them. These women. Some of whom we don't even know their names. And I'm sure they don't care. (laughs) I'm sure they don't care. Because they were there And they were holding on to his feet that day. You look forward to meeting these women, hearing their stories of how God forgave them of their sins and being able to relate to them how God has also forgiven you of your sins. And you can say, hey, I remember that day I learned about your life and it changed me. And I just say thank you for loving Jesus like that so that I could become more like you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we acknowledge that in so many ways we are more like Simon and the absent disciples and and Peter who denied he knew you than we are like the woman who cried on your feet. So much more like them than we are like... So much more like the disciples than we are like these women. And so we acknowledge this to you, Lord, and we ask you to pour out your Spirit upon us, the fire of your Spirit, that we would be those who see the greatness of our sins deeper and wider and fuller picture of our brokenness and our sinfulness before you every day by your grace, and those who subsequently grow in rejoicing, seeing the greatness of our Savior the greatness of your sacrifice, Lord Jesus Christ, growing in us every day, greater gratitude, greater love, greater acts of service, always staying near to you, never departing from you, always overflowing with the evangelistic fervor of love and service and a life of communion with you and with your people. In Jesus' name.